come up with anything better than that. If you guys will stand with me this morning, uh, turning to the book of Matthew, we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Bruce is going to continue his series entitled The Advent of the King. Uh, This morning's message is entitled The Adoration of the King. Again, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed for their own country another way. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful this morning, God, of you coming down in the form of a child, but God, with the ultimate goal to die for our sins. God, may we just rejoice that you are the king. God, may our focus be taken from the snow and the gifts this time of year and focused on, God, the power and the authority that you have as ruler. In Christ's name, amen. Always enjoy the Christmas season, singing the Christmas carols, hearing the Christmas songs. I don't know, for some reason, I never grow tired of it. Perhaps some of you do, perhaps you don't. I don't. I love it. I enjoy it every year, even though it's the same story. It's the story of Jesus' birth. And it's a great story, a true story to be reminded of each and every year. In fact, speaking of births, have you ever noticed that most women love birth stories? Uh, you know, when women hear someone's had a baby, what do they want? They want all the details, right? It's normally the case. You know, how long were you in labor? And did you have an epidural? Did you go all natural? Uh, you know, how long did you have to push? You know, women want the details. And on and on it goes. How much does he weigh? How long is she? And what color is his hair? And the questions just kind of go on and on and on. Men? Not so much. Men respond without wanting all the details of the event. So I hear you had a baby. Congrats. So what did they serve you for lunch? (laughs) Right? Did your room have one of those big flat screen TVs? So you could watch the game still. (laughs) Right? That's all, you know, that's about the case there. And on, you know, men go about other aspects of the birth that really have nothing to do with the birth itself. But as we come to the birth of Christ, and as we look here this morning at the Christmas story in the book of Matthew, it doesn't take very long to kind of figure out that 
Matthew doesn't give us any details about the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew ends chapter 1, as we saw last Sunday, by saying that Mary gave birth to a son, and Joseph called his name Jesus. And, and then Matthew begins chapter 2 by simply stating, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. No details, that's all you get. I'm sure some of you might read this and think, but what about the details? I want some of the details here. Well, for that information, you have to go to the Gospel of Luke, where Luke kind of researches it out. He investigated, and as a doctor, he gives much more details of the birth of Christ. But for Matthew, he's not so much concerned about the details of Christ's birth. What he's concerned about is the message of Jesus' birth. Matthew's focus is here is that we understand what the message of Jesus' birth is communicating to us. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. In fact, you'll notice in your notes coming up on the screen, the message of Christmas itself, the message of Christ's birth, is that Jesus Christ, the King, has come. That's the message that Matthew wants us to focus on. And of course, that message brings us to the story of the wise men traveling far from afar to worship the newborn king in Matthew chapter 2 here, verses 1 through 12. Now on one level, this is a very familiar story, the story of the wise men that most of us have seen in every Christmas pageant we've ever attended. And most of what we know about the wise men, if we're honest, is really based on Israel. So why make such a treacherous journey? Well, the answer is they have come to worship the baby born king of the Jews. Now, this is amazing. They knew a baby had been born, but they did not know where. They knew he was a king, but they did not know his name. So they come to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, seeking out information, seeking help. And they also assume that Everyone must know about this baby who's just been born. But a great surprise awaits them. Now let's be honest. Most of our uh, concepts, our ideas, even our pictures of the wise men, uh, they kind of show three guys dressed like coneheads riding three camels across the desert, and nothing could be further from the truth. There is no way the wise men traveled 1,000 miles across the desert by themselves, just the three of them, or however many there were. In those days, the only way you could travel in the desert was in a large caravan. So the wise men would have kind of swept into the city of Jerusalem with pomp and circumstance covered with 1,000 miles worth of dust. And at a minimum, they would have brought with them some type of military escort. They would have had their, their servants with them. And so the total party in all could have amounted to more than 300 people. So no wonder their presence in Jerusalem causes such a stir within the city here. But in spite of our fascination with the wise men, the focus of Matthew 2 is what? The focus is not the wise men. Verse 2 announces clearly whom this story is really about. When it asks, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So this story is about a king 
named Jesus. Now, in itself, that would not be a very great thing. After all, somewhere alive in America today, there are probably three or four kids under the age of 18 that are going to be president of the United States someday. Think about that. But nobody really cares about this right now. Nobody sets out to find them or worship them. Why? Because we don't know who they are. We don't even know if it's going to happen or not. But verse 4 here makes very clear what the wise men really mean when it states king of the Jews. It says, and when he, that is King Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Roman Senate for almost 40 years, but no one called him Messiah. Messiah is a word, it's a title, and it means long-awaited, God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rulers and establish the kingdom of God and never die or lose his reign. If you go to Luke chapter 1, there the angel Gabriel told Mary the very same thing in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now listen to what else it says. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, we don't know how the wise men here got their information that such a king was coming. But it is clear that Herod got the message. These men are not searching for a mere ordinary human successor to me. He understands that. They are searching for the final king to end all kings. And of course, as we'll see here in a moment, that is the last thing Herod was looking for or wanted himself. So what's the point of all this? You know, perhaps you're sitting there going, yeah, big deal, Bruce. What's the, what's the point? Well, the point Matthew is making here is that Jesus is worthy to be worshiped. Because he's the king of kings who has come. Jesus is the Messiah king. He's the king of kings whose kingdom will never end. And so our response to him is to worship him. In fact, God's great goal in all things is that his son would be known and worshiped by all peoples of the world. And this is exactly what the wise men set out to do, to worship Jesus Christ the king. So what does it mean to do just that? What does it mean to worship Jesus? Well, the wise men here from this particular story show us that worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Jesus with sacrificial gifts. Now, there's four parts to this definition, and all four are grounded in these verses here in Matthew 2. First of all, notice out of this definition, the wise men are ascribing authority to Jesus by calling him king of the Jews here in verse 2. And then second, the wise men are ascribing dignity to Jesus. You say, how's that? By falling down before him in verse 11. Drop down to verse 11 and look what it says. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child 
with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Now, this is not really a part of our culture. We don't do this here. But falling down is what you do to say to someone else, hey, you are high and I am low. You have great dignity and I am lowly by comparison. So it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of you are worthy. And then third, we see joy in verse 10. When it says, when they saw the star, that is the wise men saw the star, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, this is a a quadruple way of saying they rejoiced. And what was all this joy about? Well, they are on their way to see and worship the Messiah. And they're excited about it. You get the impression that true worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Jesus. Man, it is doing it joyfully. There's there's something going on in your heart, within your soul. And then the fourth part of this definition involves sacrificial gifts. Can't help but see that in the story of the wise men. But understand the gifts of the wise men understand this, are not given by way of assistance or need meeting. Here's what I mean by that. Think about this with me. It would dishonor a king if foreign visitors came with royal care packages as if he was in need of those care packages. Nor are these gifts meant to be bribes of the king. Listen, this is the king of kings, Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. He doesn't need anything from us. So these gifts that the wise men are bringing, they're not given these gifts in need that the king needs them. They They are, think of them this way, they are intensifiers of our desire for Christ himself. This desire is now demonstrated by giving up things of value in hope of enjoying Christ more and not the things that we are releasing and giving to the king. And so by giving to Christ what he does not need and what I might enjoy, what I want to enjoy, I'm saying more authentically, Jesus, you are my treasure, not these things that I'm now giving to you. Does that make sense? Now before we move on, just consider again. How little these wise men knew. They had seen a star. And they knew a baby called the king of the Jews had been born. And yet, with nothing more than that, they risked everything to seek and to worship Jesus Christ the king. This is one of the greatest examples of faith in the entire Bible. They didn't know very much about Jesus. Let me tell you, they didn't have all their questions answered about Jesus. But what they did know spurred them on to respond with worship of Jesus. But not everyone responds with worship like the wise men did. Which brings us to our second response. Number two, like King Herod, some people oppose Jesus Christ the king. Now the reaction of Herod is frightening, but it's not surprising. Look what Matthew says in verse 3. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, this word troubled, I love this word. It's an interesting word. And it means to kind of shake violently. In other words, Herod was all shook up over this one born king of the Jews. 
So here we have in King Herod, a world leader intimidated by baby Jesus, which leads to his deception. Notice this, his deception here. Herod pretended worship, but he intended murder. In verse 7, it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now you can tell he's kind of scheming here in this verse. Verse 8 says that Herod sent the wise men back to Bethlehem, and he told them, hey, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. But that was not Herod's intention. We find out later that is a bold-faced lie. Herod had no intention of worshiping anyone else as king of the Jews. In fact, it becomes quite clear later on in this very chapter that Herod wants Jesus dead no matter what it costs. And that's why he murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem. So although Herod pretended that he wanted to worship Jesus, he intended to murder Jesus all along. Now, in trying to understand this about Herod, why he would oppose Jesus to the point of murder, it helps to know that Herod is a dying man tottering on an unstable throne. He's been in power for over 40 years, and he has proven to be a clever and a cruel man. Like all tyrants, he held tightly to the reins of his power. And he did not want to relinquish those reins. And so he brutally removed anyone who kind of got in his way or who threatened his power and his throne. Over the years, he killed many people, including, get this, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his own wife because she thought she was a threat to his power. Herod had been given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, but understand, he was no Jew. By birth, he was a descendant of the Edomites. I'm not saying that right. Um, E-D-O-M-I-T-E-S, whose father was Esau. So the Jews hated him, and they despised him. They despised his rule. And as you can imagine, the notion of a baby-born king of the Jews was a very direct threat to his own rule, his throne. So no wonder he tried to kill Jesus. In his own thinking, in his own mind, he had no choice. It was kill or be killed. And now in the twilight of his life, he's ready to kill anyone who threatens him, even a tiny, helpless baby here in Jesus. So Herod kind of stands as a symbol here for the kind of world that Jesus entered into, that he was born into. Herod represents the, the world's welcoming committee for the Son of God. Doesn't seem right though, does it? Jesus is born and the political and religious rulers of the world try to kill him. And eventually they will when they will crucify him. That's why the Bible reminds us, even in John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to what was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. So when we step back from even King Herod here, what lesson do we take away from this? Well, notice this in your notes. Jesus Christ the King is often very troubling to people who do not want to worship him. He's troubling to those who will not yield their lives to him and worship him. 
Although Herod died, his spirit, I believe, lives on even today. To this day, there are people who are somewhat threatened by Jesus, even by the mere mention of his name. And so they oppose Jesus. They oppose everything he stands for, and they want to kind of erase him and even erase Jesus and everything he stands for from our culture, from our country. Why? Because these people actively seek to rid themselves of, of his sovereign rule in their lives instead of surrendering their lives to him, instead of worshiping Jesus as their king. But understand, we all, every one of us here this morning, you can picture this, we all have a, a symbolic throne in our hearts, on our hearts, in our lives. And someone is going to sit on that throne and rule over our lives. And the question is, who? If it's not Jesus, then like Herod, we will continue to oppose him instead of worshiping him like the wise men. Now, there is one positive thing we can say about Herod, believe it or not. At least he took the claims of Jesus Christ seriously which is more than we can say for this last group of people who responded toward Jesus. Look at it, number three. Like the religious leaders, some people ignore Jesus, Christ the king. Before Herod can get rid of the newborn king, he has to seem interested in helping the wise men find the Christ child. So he turns to the religious leaders of the day for help. Herod only has one question in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now these religious leaders, what's interesting, they don't have to look it up. They already know the answer to the question. 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah had predicted the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. That was common knowledge in Israel. Little children learned that in sabbatical school, or Sabbath school, I should say, sabbatical school, <laughs> Sabbath school. And if you add what the scribes knew to what the wise men figured out, man, you can conclude that the signs of Jesus' coming were clear enough here for everyone in Jerusalem to know. These wise men knew the truth, and they did something about it. The scribes, the religious leaders knew the truth, and they did nothing. The fact is all the more shocking when you consider the scribes were the professional students of the Old Testament. They spent their whole life reading, studying, memorizing, and debating the Old Testament. In other words, there's no doubt that these guys knew every prophecy of the Messiah's coming by heart. So when Herod asked them, hey, where is the Messiah to be born? They didn't have to think twice about it. They knew the answer immediately. They knew the exact location of Christ's birth. That's why they told Herod in Matthew chapter 2, here in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. And yet they did not believe the Lord had come themselves. They knew the scriptures better than anyone else. And that's why they quoted Micah's prophecy in Matthew 2, verse 6 here. When he says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And yet they did not seek the Savior and shepherd of Israel. They even knew Christ was coming to rule as a king, and yet they did not worship the newborn king. Now, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Just pause. 
Bethlehem is only about six miles from Jerusalem. The little town of Bethlehem, the big city of Jerusalem, six miles apart. In fact, it's so close, you could walk it in less than two hours. In fact, back then, people lived in Bethlehem, and they traveled to Jerusalem all the time in order to buy and sell and go to the temple. And it was a rather easy journey on good roads to travel to Jerusalem, travel from Jerusalem back to Bethlehem. Six miles, that's all. And yet none of the religious leaders cared enough to go and check out the rumor that the long-awaited Messiah had been born. The religious leaders were in Jerusalem, yet they never made the journey to Bethlehem. They were only six miles from Jesus, the newborn king. Six miles from salvation. Six miles from the forgiveness of sins. Six miles from eternal life. And yet they were too busy or too apathetic to see it for themselves. Six miles isn't very far, is it? When you think about it. In fact, it's about six miles from this very church right here, our church, to Metro North Mall, or, well, what's left of Metro North Mall, to Macy's, let's say Macy's. Most people can walk a mile in about 15 to 20 minutes. So if we took us right here this morning in the summertime, and we started walking down North Oak, we could travel six miles to Macy's in less than two hours. But the religious leaders didn't care enough to seek the Savior. So they just ignored him as if he didn't matter. These religious leaders were so close and yet so far. All that knowledge did them no good. So think about it this way. The wise men knew so little, yet traveled so far. Some Bible scholars say almost a thousand miles. The religious leaders knew so much, and yet they wouldn't venture six miles down the road. The scribes represent the religious indifferent. These are the people who know all about Jesus and do nothing about it. It was all academic to them. They basically told Herod, hey, have a nice trip. If you find the Messiah, let us know. But they should have been singing. They should have been dancing. They should have been rejoicing that the Messiah had come. And instead, they ignored his birth. So here's a question to think about. Even for us here this morning. Who looks worse? King Herod or the religious leaders? I think the religious leaders leaders look worse here because at least Herod took the birth of Jesus seriously and he acted consistently with his basic nature. By contrast, the religious leaders here knew the truth about Jesus and they still did nothing at all. They knew the answer to the question. They knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Their knowledge condemned them all the more because they did nothing about the truth that they knew in their head. So what does all this mean for us today? What do we learn from the response of these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees? Well, what we learn is that even today, some people are so close and yet so far. 
we learn that it's possible to celebrate Christmas today. It's possible to know about Jesus today and yet still miss the message that Jesus Christ has come and is coming again. If you think about it, there's a sad irony during the Christmas season every year. I'm sure some of you have watched at least a few Christmas shows, right? One of our favorites that Darla and I watch, it's now been on TV for at least three years running, and they, they, they play it at the beginning of December, and, they even, and then ABC, I think it was on, even shows it again. It's um, uh, Nettles, uh, the, the, the country singing Nettles. What's her first name? Um, she's the one that hosts the, the, the uh, country Christmas. And she brings in all these country singers and kind of interviews them. And they sing all the traditional Christmas songs. And many of them have great truth to them. They're singing about Jesus Christ. And there's other Christmas songs. And every year, millions of people will watch that show along with other shows. Millions of people will celebrate Christmas this year. And they know Christmas is about the birth of Jesus Christ. These same people will watch specials on TV. They'll, they'll listen to the songs on the radio. And, and I'm sure, like you, I never grow tired of those songs. And you listen to them. And they, they speak truth to us. They may, may sit through a, a Christmas play, pageant, whatever, uh, go to a Christmas Eve service, light a candle signifying the light of Christ's birth in a dark world, whatever the case may be. And yet many of these same people will still miss the very message of Christmas. That Jesus Christ the King has come, but he is also coming again. And the only response that matters is to worship Jesus Christ the King now before it's too late. Because Jesus is coming again, and the question is, are you ready? You are, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior. You are, if you're worshiping him as your king. So as we read here Matthew 2, one fact stands out above all the rest. And that is, everybody involved in this story had the same basic information about Jesus. They all knew a baby had been born in Bethlehem, and they all knew who the baby was. Herod knew, and he tried to kill him. The religious leaders knew, and they ignored him out of apathy. The wise men knew, and they worshipped him with their lives. This Christmas season, again... Jesus stands at the door of our hearts knocking. And the question is, will you open your heart to him? To ignore Jesus means to live as if he doesn't matter at all. But no one can ignore Jesus forever because we all have an appointment with him sooner or later when he comes again. And so in the end, there is no middle ground. Because to ignore him really is to hate him because you end up without him either way. So as we celebrate another Christmas season, let me ask you, how will you respond to Jesus Christ the King? The message here of Christmas, of his birth, is that Jesus Christ has come. But the invitation, notice this. 
is to joyfully offer your life as a worshiper of Jesus Christ the King. That's the invitation for every person here this morning. To rejoice exceedingly with great joy over this King like the wise men did. In other words, the invitation to you and I is to be very, very, very happy about this king. Is to lift up your hands and to shout for joy over this king. Is to give your life to this king. Why? Because this king who has come to save us from our sins. This is the king who died on the cross for our sins and who rose again three days later from the grave in victory over sin and death so that now everyone who believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. You see, this is the king who is coming again. And when he does, he will either come as your savior and king or he will come as your judge. So I would submit to us that the only reasonable response is to acknowledge Jesus as the king and then to joyfully offer your life as a worshiper of Jesus Christ the king. You know, it's interesting. This is the very same response that the Apostle Paul exhorts us to do as well. After Paul writes... Romans chapters 1 through 11. He then comes to Romans chapter 12. And he exhorts us to respond to Jesus and the gospel by what? Offering him our lives in worship to surrender our lives to him. It's the only reasonable response, Paul says. And nothing has changed. It's the same message year after year. And yet it's the message that comes to us in Christmas time, and it's the invitation as well. So as we end a new year and we begin to approach a new year, let me ask you here, what will your response be to Jesus Christ the King who has come but is coming again? Let's pray. Lord, it is good to be reminded of the birth of your son and the message that it brings to us. Lord, we give thanks that your son came the first time. That's the message of Christmas and that he is coming again and we praise you for that. And the invitation is now to worship him with our lives, to surrender to him and to live for him as a worshiper. And so, Lord, I pray that even now that your word and the message of Christmas may go out to our hearts and that you would move us and convict us where we're holding back perhaps a part of our lives from total surrender to you. Lord, as the praise team sings, I pray that we will respond, that we will uh, just let you evaluate our lives, our hearts, and that we would respond back to you in prayer. And so do a work that only your spirit and your word can do. As the praise team sings, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.